I'm Kristen Marshan, and along with Leslie Betts, Jeff Bowman, and Lynn Stewart, we are the Apiango Radio Flyers, a newly organized troupe of the Apiango Readers Theater, that curious group of vocal performers who have been around these parts since March of last year, entertaining local library audiences from Maynooth to Killaloo, Whitney to Combermere, and all points in between, if not beyond, thanks to the World Wide Web and the powers of podcasting. Tonight, we have a different kind of show, something of a first for us. It's our very own adaptation of that famous 1938 broadcast of H.G. Wells's War of the Worlds. Only this time, instead of using Orson Welles's Mercury Theatre of the Air script, the one that scared the bejeepers out of a goodly part of their radio audience in North America one very strange night back in 1938, we've decided to put our local spin on the original novel. So without further delay, we present H.G. Wells's War of the Worlds, The Battle of Brudenell. <laughs> Valley Broadcasting System and its affiliated stations proudly present The War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells. But before we begin, ladies and gentlemen, a word from our station manager, Ms. Edwina Orson. We know now that in the middle of the 20th century, this world was being watched closely by intelligences far greater than our own. We know now that as the good folks of the Ottawa Valley busied themselves with their daily concerns, we were being studied from afar, perhaps as narrowly as a man with a telescope might scrutinize the transient night sky that often sparkles and skittles like so many fireflies on a summer's night, full of roving comets and asteroids and who knows what. With infinite disregard, we went about our daily business worrying only about our own little affairs, secure in the knowledge of our own tiny part of this small, spinning shard of celestial driftwood, which, by chance or design, we inherited out of the dark mystery of time and space. Yet, out there, across that immense ethereal dome above us, other minds, that to our minds were as ours are to the beasts in the jungle, intellects so vast and unsympathetic to us and who regarded this valley with their envious eyes. Slowly and surely they drew down a bead upon us and hatched their nefarious plan. In the 58th year of the 20th century came the great disillusionment. It was near the end of October. Business had been better the Cold War was mounting with the launch of Sputnik the previous October. People were at work. Sales were picking up, but only slightly. On that particular evening, October 30th, 1958, the Gallup polling service estimated that nearly 12 million Canadians were listening to their radios, with over 500,000 alone in eastern Ontario and Western Quebec. We join them now in the middle of their evening weather report. For the next 24 hours, not much change in temperature. A slight atmospheric disturbance of undetermined origin is reported over Hudson Bay, 
causing a low pressure area to move down rather rapidly over eastern Ontario, bringing a forecast of rain accompanied by winds of light gale force. Maximum temperature 66, minimum 48. This weather report comes to you from the Killaloo Airdrome and Weather Station. We now take you to the Stardust Room at the Exchange Hotel in Wilno, where you will be entertained by the music of John Yaskalski, Ray Kuchkowski, Baggy Summers, and the Stopa Lake Melodiers. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, from the enchanting Stardust Room here in the Old Exchange Hotel in lovely downtown Wilno, we bring you the musical stylings of the Stopa Lake Melodiers. With a touch of the cashew, if not a hint of the leprechaun, Ray Kuchkowski leads off with... Oh, what about Redwing? Redwing, yeah, there's a little one, Gene program to bring you a special bulletin from the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. At 20 minutes before 7 Eastern Standard Time this evening, Professor Sagan of the Royal Astronomical Observatory at the University of Toronto reports observing several explosions of incandescent gas occurring at regular intervals on the planet Mars. The spectroscope indicates the gas to be hydrogen and moving towards the Earth with enormous velocity. Professor Pearson, an astronomer currently spending his sabbatical at the University of Toronto Radio Telemetry Observatory in Algonquin Park, confirms Sagan's observation and describes the phenomenon as, quote, like a jet of blue flame shot from a gun, unquote. We return you now to the musical stylings of the Stopolate Melodiers emanating joyously from the stardust room of the Old Exchange Hotel in downtown Wilno. And now, a tune that never loses its favor, the ever-popular... Ladies and gentlemen, further to the news given in our bulletin a moment ago, the National Research Council, in conjunction with the National Weather Bureau, has requested that all large observatories in the country keep an astronomical eye on any further disturbances occurring on the planet Mars. Due to the unusual nature of this occurrence, we have arranged an interview with noted astronomer Professor Pearson, who will be giving us his views on the event. In a few moments, we'll take you to the Algonquin Park Observatory. Until then, we return you now to the Old Exchange Hotel in Wilno. We are now ready to take you to the Algonquin Park Observatory, where Carla Phillips, our roving reporter, is standing by with Professor Richard Pearson. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. This is Carla Phillips, speaking to you from the University of Toronto Observatory in Algonquin Park. I am standing in a large semicircular room, pitch black, except for an oblong split in the ceiling. 
through this opening, I can see a sprinkling of stars that cast a kind of frosty glow over the intricate mechanism of the huge telescope. The ticking sound you hear is the vibration of the clockwork. Professor Pearson stands directly above me on a small platform, peering through a giant lens. I ask you to be patient, ladies and gentlemen, during any delay that may arise during our interview. Besides his ceaseless watch of the heavens, Professor Pearson may be interrupted by telephone or other forms of modern communications. Due to the unusual circumstances that are occurring this evening, Professor Pearson is in constant touch with the astronomical centers of the world. Professor, may I begin our questions? At any time, Miss Phillips. Professor, would you please tell our radio audience exactly what you see as you observe the planet Mars through your telescope? Um, nothing unusual at the moment, Miss Phillips. Um, a red disk swimming in a blue sea. Transverse stripes across the disk. Quite distinct now because Mars happens to be a point nearest the Earth, in opposition as we call it. In your opinion, what do these transverse stripes signify, Professor Pearson? Well, they're not canals, I can assure you, Miss Phillips. Although that's the popular conjecture of those who imagine Mars to be inhabited. From a scientific viewpoint, the stripes are merely the result of atmospheric conditions peculiar to the planet. Then you're quite convinced as a scientist that living intelligence as we know it does not exist on Mars. I'd say the chances against it are a thousand to one. And yet, how do you account for those gas eruptions occurring on the surface of the planet at regular intervals? Ms. Phillips, I cannot account for it. By the way, Professor, for the benefit of our listeners, how far is Mars from Earth? Oh, approximately 40 million miles. Well, that seems a safe enough distance. Just a moment, ladies and gentlemen. Someone has just handed Professor Pearson a message. While he reads it, let me remind you that we are speaking to you from the University of Toronto's observatory in Algonquin Park, where we are interviewing Professor Pearson. Uh, one moment, please. Professor Pearson has passed me a telegram which he has just received. Professor, may I read it to the listening audience? Certainly, Miss Phillips. Ladies and gentlemen, I shall read you a wire addressed to Professor Pearson from Dr. Gray of the U.S. Seismological Center of Los Angeles, California. Quote, 4.15 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Several seismograph registered shocks of almost earthquake intensity are continuing to occur within a radius of 20 to 30 miles of an epicenter at Aylan Lake, District of Nipissing. Please investigate. Signed, Lloyd Gray, Chief of Astronomical Division. End quote. Professor Pearson, could this occurrence possibly have something to do with the disturbances observed on the planet Mars? Oh, hardly, Miss Phillips. This is probably a meteorite shower of unusual size, and its arrival at this particular time is merely a coincidence. However, we shall conduct a search as soon as daylight permits. Thank you, Professor. Ladies and gentlemen, for the past 10 minutes, we've been speaking to you from the Astronomical Observatory in Algonquin Park, bringing you a special interview with Professor Pearson, noted astronomer from the University of Toronto. This is Carla Phillips, returning you now to our regularly scheduled program. from Radio Canada, Montreal. Professor Morris of McGill University reports observing a total of three explosions on the planet Mars between 7.45 p.m. and 9.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. This confirms earlier reports received from American observatories. 
now, nearer home, comes a special announcement from the new RCAF radio telemetry monitoring station, that phone mount. It is reported that at 8.50 p.m. this evening, a huge flaming object, believed to be a part of a meteorite shower, fell on a farm in the neighborhood of Brunel, less than 10 miles from Foymount. The flash in the sky was visible within a radius of 20 miles, and the noise of the impact was heard as far as Matawaska. We have dispatched a special mobile unit to the scene, and we'll have our roving reporter, Carla Phillips, give you a word description as soon as she can reach Brunel. In the meantime, we take you to the Beresford Hotel in lovely downtown Killaloo, where Leslie Hissert and the Appalachian Celtic are offering up a program of old-time music. We now take you to a farm just east of Brudenell. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Carla Phillips again at the Costello Farm near Brunel. Professor Pearson and I made the trip here in less than 20 minutes thanks to a helicopter made quickly available to Professor Pearson by the Algonquin Park Superintendent at the behest of both the local, provincial, and federal members of Parliament. Well, I hardly know where to begin to paint for you a word picture of this strange scene before my eyes, like something out of a modern Arabian Nights. Well, I just got here. I haven't had a chance to look around yet. I guess that's it. Yes, I guess that's the thing directly in front of me, half buried in a vast pit. It must have struck with terrific force. The ground is covered with splinters of a tree it must have struck on its way down. What I can see of the object itself doesn't look very much like a meteor, at least not the meteors I've seen. It looks more like a huge cylinder. It has a diameter of, what would you say, Professor Pearson? What's that? What, what would you say, what is the diameter? About 30 yards. About 30 yards. The metal on the sheath is, well, I've never seen anything like it. The color is sort of yellowish-white. Curious spectators now are pressing close to the object in spite of the efforts of the police to keep them back. They're getting in front of my line of vision. Would you mind standing to one side, please? One side there. One side. While the police are pushing the crowd back, here's Mrs. Costello, who lives on the farm where the cylinder just landed. She may have some interesting facts to add. Mrs. Costello, would you please tell our radio audience as much as you remember about this rather unusual visitor that dropped in her backyard? Uh, step closer, please. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Mrs. Costello. Coslo! Coslo, not Costello! Sorry. Well, I was listening to the radio. Closer and louder, please. Pardon me? Louder, please, and closer. Yes, miss. What? While I was listening to the radio and, and kind of drowsing, that professor fellow was talking about Mars, so I was half dozing and half... Yes, yes, Mrs. Coslow. Then what happened? Well, as I was saying, I was listening to the radio kind of halfway. Yes, Mrs. Coslow, and then you saw something? Oh, not first off. I heard something. And what did you hear? A hissing sound like this. Kind of like a Dominion Day celebration, kind of like a 1st of July rocket going off, kind of half cocked into the sky, and then sort of fizzling out. Then what? I, I turned my head out the window and would have swore I was asleep and dreaming. 
Yes. But I've seen a kind of greenish streak, and then, by God, something smacked the ground. Knocked me clear out of my chair. Well, were you frightened, Mrs. Coslin? Well, I... I ain't quite sure. I'm thinking I... I was kind of wild. Thank you, Mrs. Coslow. Thank you. Want me to tell you some more? No, that's quite all right. Thank you. That's plenty. Ladies and gentlemen, you've just heard Mrs. Coslow, who lives on the farm near Broodnell where this thing has fallen. I wish I could convey the atmosphere, the background of this fantastic scene. Countless numbers of half-ton trucks are parked in a field in back of us. Police are trying to rope off the road leading to the Coslow farm, but it's no use. They're breaking right through. Headlights throw an enormous spot on the pit where the object's half buried. Some of the more daring souls are now venturing near the edge. Their silhouettes stand out against the metal sheen. One man wants to touch the thing. He's having an argument with a policeman. Uh, the policeman wins. Now, ladies and gentlemen, there's something I haven't mentioned in all this excitement, but now it's becoming more distinct. Perhaps you've caught it already on your radio. Listen, do you hear it? Curious hissing or humming sound that seems to come from inside the object. I'll move the microphone nearer. Now we're not more than 25 feet away. Can you hear it now? Oh, Professor Pearson! Yes, Miss Phillips? Can you tell us the meaning of that scraping noise inside the thing? Uh, possibly the unequal cooling of its surface. I see. You still think it's a meteor, Professor? I, I don't know what to think. The metal casing is definitely extraterrestrial not found on this earth. Friction with the Earth's atmosphere usually tears holes in a meteorite. This thing is smooth and, as you can see, a cylindrical shape. Just a minute. Something's happening. Ladies and gentlemen, this is terrific. The end of the thing is beginning to flake off. The top is beginning to rotate like a screw. That thing must be hollow. She, she's moving! Oh, 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 keep oh, back there! Keep back, I tell you! Maybe there's men in it trying to escape! It's red hot. Oh, They'll no. burn to a cinder! Keep back there. Keep those idiots back. She's off. The top, it's loose. Look out there. Stand back. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the most terrifying thing I have ever witnessed. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Someone's crawling out of the hollow top. Someone or something. I can see peering out of that black hole two luminous discs. Are they eyes? It might be a face. It might be. <gasps> oh, 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 God, it's there. No. Something's wriggling out of the shadow like a gray snake. Now, there's another one, and another. They look like tentacles to me. There, I can see the thing's body. It's large, larger than a grizzly bear, and it glistens like wet leather. But that face, it, ladies and gentlemen, it's indescribable. I can hardly force myself to keep looking at it. The eyes are black and gleam like a serpent. The mouth is V-shaped with saliva dripping from its rimless lips that seem to quiver and pulsate. The monster, or whatever it is, can hardly move. It seems weighed down by possibly gravity or something. The thing's racing up. The crowd falls back now, they've seen plenty. This is the most extraordinary experience. I can't find words. I'll pull this microphone with me as I talk. I'll have to stop the description until I can take a new position. Hold on, will you please? I'll be right back in a minute. bringing you an eyewitness account of what's happening on the Costello Farm near Brunel. We now return you to Carl Phillips near Brunel. Ladies and gentlemen, am I on? Am I on? 
Ladies and gentlemen, here I am, back of a stone wall that adjoins Mrs. Cosmo's garden. From here, I get a sweep of the whole scene. I'll give you every detail for as long as I can talk, as long as I can see. Moro people, dozens upon dozens, maybe as many as a hundred, have arrived along with what looks like an RCMP tactical unit. Two, three dozen, all dressed in black battle gear, carrying big shields and machine guns. They're drawing up a cordon in front of the pit, about 30 of them. No need to push the crowd back now. They're willing to keep their distance. The captain of the OPP and his RCMP counterpart conferring with someone. I can't quite see who. Oh yes, I believe it's Professor Pearson. Yes, it is. And now, now they've parted. The professor moves around one side, studying the object, while the two captains and two separate RCMP tactical squads advance with something large in their hands. It's a long pole, maybe a battering ram. No, I can see it now. It's a long pole that they're raising with a white handkerchief tied to it. It's a flag of truce. Those creatures know what that means, or what anything means. Wait, something's happening. A humped shape is rising out of the pit. I can make it out a small light, beam of light against a mirror. What's that? There's a jet of flame springing from the mirror and it leaps right at the advancing head. It strikes them head on. The Lord, they're on fire, all of them all turning into flame. Oh! Now the whole field's caught fire. The woods, the barn, the gas tanks of automobiles. It's spreading everywhere. And it's coming this way. Those 20 hearts to my right. except by special pass issued by Canadian military authorities. Four companies of the 22nd Regiment, the Van Dues, are proceeding from Petawawa to Brudenell forthwith and will aid in the evacuation of homes within the range of military operations. Thank you. You have just been listening to General Bradley Withers, commander of Camp Petawawa. 
In the meantime, further details of the catastrophe of Brudenell are coming in. The strange creatures, after unleashing their deadly assault, crawled back into their pit and made no attempt to prevent the efforts of the firemen to recover the bodies and extinguish the fire. The combined fire departments of Brudenell and Raglan, as well as Haggerty and Richards, are fighting the flames which menace the entire countryside. We've been unable to establish any contact with our mobile unit at Brunel, but we hope to be able to return you there at the earliest possible moment. In the meantime, we take you... Just, just one moment, please. Ladies and gentlemen, I've just been informed that we have finally established communication with an eyewitness of the tragedy. Professor Pearson has been located at a farmhouse near Brunel where he has established an emergency observation post. As a scientist, he will give you his explanation of the calamity. The next voice you hear will be that of Professor Pearson, brought to you by telephone. Professor Pearson? Of, of the creatures in the rocket cylinder at Brudenell, I can give you no authoritative information, either as to their nature, their origin, or their purposes here on Earth their destructive instrument, I might venture some conjectural explanation. For want of a better term, I shall refer to the mysterious weapon as a heat ray. It's all too evident that these creatures have scientific knowledge far in advance of our own. And it's my guess that in some way they are able to generate an intense heat in a chamber of practically absolute non-conductivity. This intense heat they project in a parallel beam against any object they choose by means of a polished parabolic mirror of unknown composition, much as the mirror of a lighthouse projects a beam of light. This is my conjecture of the origin of the heat ray. Thank you, Professor Pearson. Ladies and gentlemen, here's a bulletin from the press office at Camp Petawala. It's a brief statement informing us that the charred body of Carlo Phillips has been identified at an Army Field Hospital set up near Old Killaloo. Here's another bulletin from Ottawa. The Office of the Director of the National Red Cross reports two busloads of Red Cross emergency workers have been assigned and dispatched to assist the Van Dues Field Headquarters, already established in Old Killaloo. They are to deal with any civilian casualties and any wounded, civilian or otherwise, being escorted away from Brudenell. Here's a bulletin from the OPP Killaloo. The fires near Brudenell and vicinity are now under control. Scouts report all quiet in the pit and no sign of life appearing from the mouth of the cylinder. And now, ladies and gentlemen, we have a special statement from our station manager, Ms. Edwina Orson. We have received a request from the commander at Camp Petawawa to place at their disposal our entire broadcasting facilities. In view of the gravity of the situation and the belief that radio has a responsibility to serve the public interest at all times, we are turning over our entire broadcasting transmission facilities to the Camp Petawawa authorities. We take you now to the field headquarters of the Van Dues in Old Killaloo. Uh, this is uh, Captain Skibo of the Signal Corps, attached to the 22nd Regiment now engaged in military operations in the vicinity of Brudenell. Uh, the situation arising from the reported presence of certain individuals of unidentified nature is now under complete control. It's 
cylindrical object, which lies in a pit directly below our position, is surrounded on all sides by two companies of elite infantry troops. Without heavy field pieces, but adequately armed with rifles and machine guns. All cause for alarm, if such cause ever existed, is now entirely unjustified. The things, whatever they are, did not even venture to poke their heads above the pit. I can see their hiding place plainly in the glare of the searchlights here. With all their reported resources, these creatures can scarcely stand up against heavy machine gun fire. Anyway, it's an interesting outing for the troops. I can make out their khaki uniforms crossing back and forth in front of the lights. It looks almost like a real war. There appears to be some slight smoke in the woods bordering on Brennan's Creek. Probably fires started by campers. Well, we ought to see some action soon. One of the companies is deploying on the left flank. Quick thrust and it'll all be over. Okay, now wait a minute. I see, I see something on top of the cylinder. No, no, it's nothing but a shadow. Now the troops are on the edge of the Costello farm. Semi-armed men closing in on an old metal tube. Wait, that wasn't a shadow. It's something moving, solid metal. Kind of shield-like affair rising up out of the cylinder. It's going higher and higher. It's standing on legs, actually rearing up on some sort of metal framework. Now it's reaching above the trees and the searchlights are on it. Hold on! Quebec. 
We take you now to Ottawa for a special broadcast on the national emergency. Here is the Governor General. Citizens of the nation, I shall not try to conceal the gravity of the situation that confronts the country, nor the concern of your government in protecting the lives and property of its people. However, I wish to impress upon you, private citizens and public officials, all of you, the urgent need of calm and resourceful action. Fortunately, this formidable enemy is still confined to a comparatively small area, and we may place our faith in the military forces to keep them there. In the meantime, place our faith in God. We must continue the performance of our duties, each and every one of us, so that we may confront this destructive adversary with a nation united, courageous, and consecrated to the preservation of human supremacy on this earth. I thank you. You have just heard the Governor General of Canada speaking from Ottawa. Bulletins too numerous to read are piling up in the studio here. We are informed that the western part of Renford County and the north section of Lennox and Addington have been blacked out from radio communication due to the effect of the heat rate upon power lines and electrical equipment. Here is a special bulletin from Ottawa. Overseas cables received from British, French, and German scientific bodies offering assistance. Astronomers report continued gas outbursts at regular intervals on planet Mars. A majority of them voice the opinion that the enemy will be reinforced by additional rocket machines. Attempts have been made to locate Professor Pearson of the Algarfoot Park Observatory, who has observed Martians at close range. It is feared he was lost in the recent battle near Brudenell. RCAF Trenton Air Base scouting planes report three Martian machines visible above treetops, moving eastwards from Mazinaw Lake, with population fleeing ahead of them. Heat ray not in use, although advancing at express train speed, the invaders pick their way carefully. They seem to be making conscious effort to avoid destruction of towns, villages, and countryside. However, they stop to uproot power lines, bridges, and railroad tracks. Their apparent objective is to crush resistance, paralyze communication, and disorganize human society. Here is a bulletin from the Bancroft Times from their reporter near Lake St. Peter, halfway between Maynooth and Whitney. Hunters have stumbled on a cylinder embedded in a great swamp 20 miles southwest of Whitney. No obvious activity noted. The hunters say the cylinder is sinking fast. Several more cylinders have been reported near Aylan Lake, with two of them disgorging their contents and gargantuan Martian machines rearing up from the wilderness and already moving eastward towards the Pog Lake and Round Lake districts. Artillery field pieces have been dispatched from Camp Petawawa to engage these latest units just landed near Aylan Lake before any of the cylinders can be opened and fighting machines rigged. They will be taking up position near Aylan Lake shortly. Another bulletin from RCAF Air Base Trenton. Scouting planes report enemy machines, estimated 30 in number but increasing as we speak, all moving southeastward through the Ottawa Valley destroying bridges and overpasses wherever they are met in their evident haste to form a conjunction with their allies already landed in the Algonquin Park area, as well as Renfrew, Lennox, and Addington counties. At least six cylinder machines have been sighted by a lone telephone operator in Alice Township near Round Lake, within 10 miles of Bonnechere Provincial Park. Here's another bulletin from Trenton Field. 
fleet of RCAF bombers carrying heavy ordnance flying north in pursuit of enemy. A new experimental jet, the MKRL-204, sometimes simply called the Avro Arrow, and that can fly faster than the speed of sound, will act as a scouting outrider. Just a moment, please. Ladies and gentlemen, we've just connected to a house phone near Aylan Lake, just off Highway 60, where the artillery from Camp Petawawa has set up and has commenced firing. We take you now to a battery of the 22nd Field Artillery, located halfway between Madawaska and Barry's Bay. Range, 32 meters. 32 meters. Projection, 39 degrees. 39 degrees. Fire! Recalibrate 140 yards to right. Shift range, 31 meters. 31 meters. Projection, 37 degrees. 37 degrees. Fire. Ahead, sir. We hit one of the tripod's legs. Quick, get the range. Shift, 30 meters. 30 meters. Projection, 27 degrees. 27 degrees. Fire. Can't, can't see the shell land, sir. They're letting off a smoke. What is it? Well, black smoke, sir, moving this way, lying close to the ground. It's moving fast. This gas masks. Get ready to fire. Shift 24 meters. 24 meters. Projection, 24 degrees. 24 degrees. Fire! Still can't see, sir. Smoke's coming nearer. <coughs> Get the range. <coughs> 20, 23 meters. <coughs> 23 meters. <coughs> 23 meters. Projection, <coughs> 22 degrees. 22 degrees. <coughs> T12, 12 Trenton Ops, Trenton Ops. Tiger 1, 2. Ops, Tiger 1, 2, go. This is Tiger 1, 2. Ridge running, speed 207, heading 130. Ops Tiger 1-2, copy. Return run from Algonquin Park Observatory, approaching southeast uplands. Ceiling 2,000 feet, 424 Squadron Leader Sobolski, Tiger 1-2. This is Sobolski reporting to Trent Ops. Loud and clear. Say again previous transmission. Copy. Enemy tripod machine sighted as far west as Lake Okeongo. 36 machines in total, including three machines from the Mazinaw Group, six between Maynooth and Whitney, one machine crippled near Lake St. Peter, one believed hit by shell from army guns south of Halem Lake, artillery gun is now silent, heavy black fog is close to earth along Madawaska and Bonachere River Valley, extreme density is nature's unknown, no sign of heat ray, Enemy converging due east, heading towards Ottawa River, wading without difficulty through marshes and across fields. One still straddling the Madawaska River at Bark Lake, cutting all power lines emanating from it, but leaving dam intact. Probable objective, City of Ottawa. We're now above Arm Prior, where they're pushing down high-tension power station. Machine guns close enough together now, ready to commence attack, a thousand yards, just about over the first, 600, 200. A, a giant arm is rising, pointing, pointing towards us. 
This is our green flag, Stranger's Plate. Engine's getting out, 800 feet. No chanceries, bombs. Only thing left, shot on them. Avro RL-201, calling Trent Knox. Avro Arrow RL-201, calling Trent Knox. Avro RL-201, go. Flying escort for RCAF-424, Bomber Squadron, east of Armfryer. Witnessed a green flash consecutively making contact with all six bombers. All disappeared within 30 seconds or so. Spotted four parachutes. Copy. Loud and clear. Return to base. Immediately. Get the hell out of there. Will do. Sorry I'm not armed. Might have done something. Just bring that arrow back in one piece. Now stop the chit chat and get the hell out of there. This is Camp Petawawa. This is Petawawa interrupting all local radio traffic within the area currently under martial law. Warning. Poisonous black smoke pouring down Madawaska River Valley, Bonnachere River Valley, York River Valley, Opiongo River Valley, Mississippi River Valley. Westerly winds driving it towards Whitewater region. Eganville, Cobden, Beechburg soon to be engulfed as far east as Carp, Stittsville, and Elmont. Gas masks? Useless. Urge population to move into open spaces. Automobiles use Highway 17 to Montreal or 16 to Brockville. Avoid low-lying river valleys, swamps, and congested areas. Smoke now is spreading over the PM. To X-ray to Lima Foima calling Charlie Quebec Uplands. To X-ray to Lima Foimount calling Charlie Quebec Uplands. Oh, two X-ray two Lima Foymount calling eight X-ray three Romeo Uplands. Do you read me? This is eight X-ray three Romeo Uplands coming back at two X-ray two Lima Foymount. How is reception? How's reception? What's the matter? What's going on? What's happening? I'm speaking from the rooftop of our Ottawa Valley Broadcasting Corporation headquarters on Spark Street in the nation's capital. The bells you hear are ringing to warn people to evacuate as the Martians approach. Estimated in the last two hours, over one million people from all over eastern Ontario and western Quebec have moved out along the roads to the southeast and southwest. All traffic on Highway 17 and 16 is at a standstill. Bridges along the way have been blown or power lines down to obstruct forward movement. Avoid the main highways. All are hopelessly jammed. All communication with Montreal and Toronto closed 10 minutes ago. No more defenses. Our army from Camp Petawawa possibly has been wiped out. Artillery, Air Force, Trenton, Camp Borden, everything wiped out. This may be our last broadcast. We'll stay here to the end, ladies and gentlemen. People are holding service below us in the cathedral. I'm looking down the Ottawa River. All manner of boats overloaded with fleeing population pulling out from the docks. Where do they think they're going? Lord only knows. There is no escape by water. Streets are all jammed. Strangely, it's like New Year's Eve. Wait, wait a minute. Enemy now in sight along the Defen bunker near the car bridge. Fifty or more great machines. I can see them from here. They're entering the Ottawa River, waiting, 
waiting like a man waiting effortlessly through a brook. A bulletin has just been handed to me. Martian cylinders, they're falling all over the country, outside Thunder Bay, Calgary, Halifax, Vancouver. They seem to be timed and spaced. Now the first machine is breaching the shore at Le Breton Flats. It stands, watching, looking over the city. Its steel, cowlish head is even with the skyscrapers. It's waiting for the others. They are all rising like a line of new towers on the city's west side. Now they're lifting their metal hands. This is the end now. Smoke is coming out, black smoke, drifting over the city. People in the streets see it now. They're, they're running towards the river, thousands of them. They're jumping in, they're dropping like rats. Now the smoke is spreading faster. It's reached Spark Street. People are trying to run away from it, but it's no use. They're, they're falling like flies. Now the smoke is crossing down Rideau, <clears throat> Sussex, 100 yards away. <laughs> Two X-ray, two Lima, calling Charlie Quebec. Two X-ray, two Lima, Foymount, calling Charlie Quebec Uplands, Ottawa. Is there anyone on the air? Isn't there anyone on the air? Isn't there anyone? As I set down these notes on paper, I'm obsessed by the thought that I may be the last living man on earth. I'm hiding in this old train station in Barry's Bay. A small island of daylight cut off by the black smoke from the rest of the world. With only the sound of the telegraph machine gone mad, clicking every so often as though it had short-circuited. All that happened before the arrival of these monstrous creatures in the world now seems part of another life. A life that has no continuity with the present. The existence of this lonely derelict who pencils these words on the back of some astronomical notes bearing the signature of Richard Pearson. I looked down at my blackened hands, my torn shoes, my clothes, and I tried to connect them to the professor on sabbatical who lives in the Hoffman Park, and who on the night of October 30th moves through his telescope an orange splash of light on the distant planet. My wife, my colleagues, my students in my books, my observatory, my world, where are they? Did they ever exist? Am I Richard Pearson? What day is it? Do days exist without calendars? Does time pass when there are no human hands left to wind the clock? In writing down my daily life, I tell myself I'll try to preserve human history between the dark covers of this little book. It was meant to record the movements of the stars. But to write, I must live. And to live, I must eat. I find moldy bread in the station agent's kitchen upstairs, and an orange not too spoiled to swallow. I keep watch at the window. Time to time, I catch sight of a Martian above the black smoke. The smoke still holds half the village in its black coil. But at length, there's a hissing sound, and suddenly I see a Martian mounted on his machine, spraying the air with a jet of steam as if to dissipate the smoke. Watching the corner as his huge metal legs nearly brush against the station. I'm exhausted by terror. I fall asleep. It's morning. The morning. Sun streams in the window. The black cloud of gas is lifted, and the scorched meadows to the north look as though a black snowstorm has passed over them. I 
venture from the station. I make my way along Highway 60. No traffic. Here and there, a wrecked car, baggage overturned, black and skeleton. I push on east. For some reason, I, I feel safer trailing these monsters than running away from them. And I keep a very, very careful watch. I've seen the Martians feed. If one of their machines appear over the top of trees, I'm ready to fling myself flat. I come to a crab apple tree. Silver crab apples are ripe. I fill my pockets. I, I must keep alive. Two days I've wandered in a vague easterly direction through the desolate world. Finally, I notice a living creature, a small red squirrel in a maple tree. I stare at him in wonder. Stares back at me. I believe at that moment the animal and I share the same emotion, the joy of finding another living being. I push on east along the railway tracks. Empty yet strangely pristine, their steel smooth and glistening in the sunshine of what must be Indian summer. I find dead cows in the brackish field near Hagati's Pass. Beyond the charred ruins of another dairy cow. Barn up on Shrine Hill remains standing guard over the wasteland like a lighthouse deserted by the sea. Astride the barn perches a weathercock. The arrow points north. Next day, I came to a town, vaguely familiar in its contours, yet its buildings strangely dwarfed and leveled off, as if a giant hand sliced off its top floors with a capricious sweep of his hand. I reached the outskirts. I found Killaloo, undemolished, but humbled by some whim of the advancing Martians. Presently, with an odd feeling of being watched, I caught sight of something crouching in a doorway. I made a step towards it. And it rose up and became a woman, armed with a large knife. Stop! Where did you come from? I, I come from many places. A long time ago, from the University of Toronto. Gotham Park, Brudenell. Brudenell? Yes. Brudenell. This is my country. All this end of town down to Brennan's Creek. There's no food here. There's only food for one. Which way are you going? I, I don't know. I guess I'm looking for people. What was that? Did you hear something just then? Only a bird. A live bird. You know, you get to know that birds have shadows these days. Say, we're in the open here. Let's crawl into this doorway and talk. Have you seen any Martians? Nah, they've gone to Ottawa. At night, the sky is alive with their lights. They're a long, long way away. By daylight, you can't see the lights at all. Five days ago, a couple of them carried something big across the flats from the Killaloo Airport to the Bonnechere Airport at Round Lake. I think they're learning how to fly. Fly? Yeah, fly. And it's all over with humanity. Stranger, there's still you and me. Two of us left. They got themselves in solid. They wrecked the greatest place in the world. Those green stars, they're probably falling somewhere every night. They've only lost one machine. There isn't anything to do. We're done. We're licked. Where were you? You're in a uniform. Yeah, what's left of it? I was in the Bandus. There wasn't any war any more than there was a war between men and ants. And we're eatable ants. I found that out. 
what will they do with us? I've thought it all out. Right now, we're not caught, but we're wanted. On the run. The Martian only has to go a few miles to get a crowd on the run. But they won't keep doing that. They'll begin catching us systematically. Keeping the best and storing us in cages and things. They haven't begun on us yet. Not begun? Not begun. All that's happened so far is because we don't have enough sense to keep quiet. Bothering them with guns and such stuff and losing our heads and rushing off in crowds. Now, instead of rushing around blind, we've got to fix ourselves up. Fix ourselves up according to the way things are now. Cities, nations, civilization, progress, that's all over and done with. But if that's so, what's there to live for? Well, there won't be any more concerts for a million years or so and no nice little dinners at restaurants. If it's amusement you're after, I guess the game's up. And what's left? Life, that's what. I want to live. Yeah, and so do you. We're not going to be exterminated. And I don't mean to be caught either and fattened and bred like an ox. What are you going to do? I'm going on, right under their feet. I got a plan. Civilization as we used to know it, that's finished. We don't know enough yet to keep it going. We got to learn plenty before we got a chance. And we've got to live and keep free while we learn. I've thought it all life. Tell me the rest. Well, it isn't all of us that are made to live the life of wild beasts, and that's what it's got to be for the next generation or more. That's why I watched you. All these little workers that used to live in these houses, they'd be no good. They haven't got any stuff to them. They just used to run off to work. I've seen hundreds of them running wild in the morning for fear they'd get canned if they didn't get to work, running back at night afraid they wouldn't be in time for dinner. Lives insured and a little invested in case of accidents. And then on Sundays, worried about the hereafter. The Martians will be a godsend for those guys. Nice roomy cages, good food, careful breeding, no worries. After a week or so chasing about the fields on empty stomachs, they'll come and they'll be glad to be caught. You've thought it all out, haven't you? You bet I have. And that isn't all. These Martians will make pets of some of them, train them to do tricks. Who knows? Get sentimental over the pet boy who grew up and had to be killed. And some, maybe they'll train some to hunt us. No, that's impossible. No human being. Yes, they will. There's men who'll do it gladly. If one of them ever comes after me, well... In the meantime, you and I and others like us, where are we to live when the Martians own the earth? I got it all figured out. We'll live underground. I've been thinking about the Bonnachere Caves. That main cave is big enough for anybody. And there's root cellars, bunkers, underground storerooms, radio tunnels, culverts all over the place. You begin to see, eh? And we'll get a bunch of strong people together. No weak ones. They're rubbish. Out. And you meant me to go? Well, I gave you a chance, didn't I? Well, we won't quarrel about that. Go on. We've got to make safe places for us to stay in, see? And get all the books we can, like science books. That's where men like you come in, see? We'll raid the museums. We'll even spy on the Martians. It may not be so much that we have to learn before. Well, just imagine this. Four or five of their own fighting machines suddenly start off. Heat rays right and left and not a Martian in them. Not a Martian in them, but people. People like us who have learned the way how. It may even be in our time. Gee, imagine having one of those lovely things with its heat ray wide and free. We'd turn it on Martians. We'd turn it on men. We'd bring everybody down to their knees. That's your plan? You and me and a few more of us. We own the world. I see. Hey, what's the matter? 
Where are you going? Not to your world. Goodbye, stranger. After parting with the stranger, I went back through old Killaluna Brood Down. I walked up to the pit where the first Martian had landed. There again were black powder and several bodies, and an evil, ominous smell from the bottom holes, maybe 50 feet below me. I wandered delirious through miles of bush until I came out of Cormac and finally ended up at the Cormac. There, as I approached the sentry gate, I caught sight of a lean dog running past me down the hillside. Towards Cormac with a piece of dark brown meat in his jaws, a pack of starving mongrels at his heels. He made a wide circle around me, so he feared I might prove a fresh competitor. I walked up to the sentry gate in the direction of that strange black powder, past silent windows, displaying their mute-in-sized empty sidewalls, past building after building, dark and silent, until I saw the radio tower, only to look up to watch a flock of black birds circling in the sky. I hurried on. Suddenly, I caught sight of the hood of a Martian machine down below, leaning in the late afternoon sun. An insane idea. I rushed recklessly towards it and into the trees. I climbed a small hill above it. And there I could see, standing in a silent row along the road below, 19 of those great metal titans, their cowls empty, their great steel arms hanging listlessly by their sides. I looked in vain for the monsters that inhabit those machines. Suddenly, my eyes were attracted to an immense flock of blackbirds that swept directly above me down the hill. They circled to the ground, and there, before my eyes, stark and silent, lay the Martians, with the hungry birds pecking and tearing brown shreds of flesh from their bodies. Later, when their bodies were examined in the laboratories, it was found that they were killed by the putrefactive and diseased bacteria against which their systems were unprepared. Slain, after all, not by man's defenses that had failed, but by the humblest thing that God in her wisdom put upon this earth. Before the cylinders fell to earth that night, there was a general persuasion that through all the deep space, no life existed beyond the petty surface of our minute sphere. Now we see further. Dim and wonderful is the vision I have conjured up in my mind life spreading slowly from this little seed head of the solar system throughout the inanimate vastness of space. But that's a remote dream. It may be that the destruction of the Martians is only a reprieve. To them, and not to us, is the future ordained, perhaps. Stranger now seems to sit in my peaceful study in Algonquin Park, writing down this last chapter of the record begun at a deserted farm in Brunel. Strange to see from my window the white retracting dome that hides my radio telescope through an August haze. Strange to watch my children playing on the grass. And strange to see young park campers strolling on the green where the new spring grass heals the last black scars of a bruised earth. Strange to watch the sightseers enter our little museum where the dissembled parts of a Martian machine are kept on public view. Strange when I recall the time when I first saw it, bright, clean-cut, hard, and silent, under the dawn of that last great day.
this is the station manager, ladies and gentlemen, to assure you that the War of the Worlds has no further significance than as the holiday offering it was intended to be. The Apiango Readers Theatre's own podcast version of dressing up in a sheet, jumping out of a bush, and saying, BOOM! We couldn't scope all of your windows, or God forbid, turn over all of your outhouses by Thursday night. So we did the next best thing. We annihilated the world before your very ears and utterly destroyed the Ottawa Valley and a goodly part of Parliament Hill to boot. No great loss there, I suspect some of you might think, given the recent election. You will be relieved, I hope, to learn that we didn't mean any of it, not even the part about Parliament. Mercifully, it will again soon be open for business. So goodbye, everybody, and remember the terrible lesson you learned tonight. That grinning, glowing, globular invader in your living room is an inhabitant of the pumpkin patch. And if your doorbell rings and nobody's there, those were not Martians. It's only Halloween. Apiango Readers Theatre and its affiliated Apiango Radio Flyers, in conjunction with their weekly podcast, The Apiango Line, heard coast to coast and around the world, if not on Mars, have brought you The War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells. Our script was adapted from Orson Welles's Mercury Theatre of the Air 1938 broadcast, written by Howard E. Koch, itself an adaptation of H.G. Wells's War of the Worlds. It was further adapted by our producer, Barry Conway, for this broadcast. The Apiango Radio Flyers performing the show tonight include Leslie Betts, Jeff Bowman, Lynn Stewart, and myself, Kristen Marchand. For all of us here, we would like to wish you a happy, if not scary, night of trick-or-treating this coming Halloween. But most of all, we wish you a good day from the Madawaska Valley.